Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in Psychedelic Salon 2.0. And today I am happy to welcome back my friend Lex Pelger with another of our Psychedelic Salon 2.0 podcasts. You know, besides having to work for a living like most of us do, Lex is also the father of a young child who he gets to spend a lot of his time with. And, uh, well, Lex really has had his hands full lately and hasn't been able to do a lot of these Salon 2.0 programs, but uh, somehow he found a way to get yet another interview to us. I think uh, we also owe Lex a big thank you for the subject matter of this conversation. As my close friends know, I'm uh, not really a big fan of organized religion anymore, and so I've avoided religious discussions on these podcasts, uh, for the most part anyhow. However, uh, that doesn't mean that I don't realize that a significant number of our fellow saloners are still religious to one degree or another. So I don't think that it's my place to insert my own views about religion here. Uh, Well, mainly because growing up as a Catholic uh, left some scars on me. Nonetheless, uh, after listening to the interview that I'm about to play for us, I, uh, I really found it quite refreshing, and it contains information that I certainly wish that I knew when I was much younger. I also wish that uh, back then I'd already learned that famous question Terence McKenna sometimes asked, Why do you believe what you believe? <laughs> and uh, that question, my friends, has been one that, uh, well, one of my most important tools in figuring out my own relationship to organized religion. Maybe you can uh, try that question on yourself someday. Uh, it certainly can provide some revealing answers if you're very honest with yourself. Now, I realize that some of our fellow saloners uh, might treat this podcast like I once would, and that is to not listen to anything at all that dealt with Christianity. So I totally understand how you feel, but (laughs) after about 20 minutes, when Danny begins talking about the psychedelic chemistry involved with psychoactive plants that are mentioned in the Bible, well, uh, (laughs) let's just say that I'll be listening to this talk again to dig out the things that I missed the first time around uh, while I was thinking about what was just said. Uh, It's really that kind of an interview, and I hope that you enjoyed it as much as I have. And I'm not going to give a spoiler alert here because I'm not going to spoil it by telling you what that psychoactive drug is. <laughs> now, uh, here is longtime friend of the salon, Lex Pelger, who is going to take it from here. I'm Lex Pelger, and this is the Psychedelic Salon 2.0. The Reverend Danny Nemu examines the Gospels and psychedelic drugs. He joins those researchers who see an entheogenic origin to some of the biblical stories and Judeo-Christian practices. In this conversation, we learn the true purpose of frankincense and myrrh, the fungal essence of our daily bread, and some of the good Reverend's favorite legal highs. As you'll hear, his second book, Neuroapocalypse, is out, and I highly recommend it. So please enjoy this talk with the Reverend Danny Nemo. Hello, everybody. I'm very pleased to be here with the Reverend Danny Nemu. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Lex. It's good to be here. I'm excited to hear more about your writings on the Bible and and drugs. Um, But I think the first question is, how uh, do you come by the the Reverend title? 
Um, I got ordained on the internet for about $15, and we're going back a long way now. This is last millennium, um, so it's probably a little bit more than that now. But um, when I lived in Japan, I got myself a job uh, marrying, let's say, uh, marrying pagans, basically. And as everybody knows, Jesus was a white man, and therefore I managed to land this job in a, in a rather bizarre industry in Japan. Uh, so I would go along. Sometimes I'd do five weddings in a day. Um, I would sing What a Friend You Have in Jesus in Japanese, and they would be stained glass windows and all of that kind of malarkey. So in order to do that, I needed to be a genuine reverend, which meant I needed to get, I need to send $15 off to the Universal Life Church. That's great. I'm glad it's official and that it worked out so well. Yes, my son. <laughs> um, and I should like to start with the beginning of your story, um, both with drugs and with religion. And I was curious how um, both of those came into your early life. Uh, yeah, well, I was raised fairly secular, let's say. I was raised Reformed Jewish, which um, doesn't have a great deal of mysticism to it, um, certainly not the way I thought it. And um, I think, I mean, I was always interested. Yeah, I got into uh, fiddling with my brain from quite a young age. I think around 15 was my first joint. And that was just fascinating. But I was, um, what else? Uh, I got into chaos magic at about the age of 20, about the same time as I got into Buddhism, almost exactly the same time. And um, yeah, that took me down some interesting pathways. But one of the, I guess one of the, foundational ideas of chaos magic is that uh nothing is true everything is permitted and i guess even before i got into that i was curious about why people believed certain things and didn't believe other things so i kind of read all richard dawkins's um uh stuff on memes uh for example and yeah i'm i'm fascinated by why the mind does what it does in all dimensions you know why we see certain things why we miss other things why we think certain things, why we disbelieve other things. And so I guess my interest in religion was uh, more as maybe, a, more, let's say, an anthropological interest. For quite a while, I did my my dissertation at university was on Jehovah's Witnesses and 17th century American Protestants and uh, their perspectives on health and the body. So I was always interested in what people believe and how that uh, – how that influences how they behave and how it influences history as well. My people. Yeah. I, yeah. My church felt like it was 17th century Protestant. Oh, right. I see. Um, and so that kind of interest um, made psychedelics a pretty natural discovery for you. Mm, yeah, I guess so. I'm just trying to think what was first. Um, no, I think, I think probably the psychedelics first. I think once I realized just how malleable, um, certainly our perception of the world is maybe the world itself uh yeah it just got me really fascinated about you know what we believe and how what you believe affects what happens uh both in terms of like like for example in chaos magic you, you have this idea that if you if you believe something with enough fervor uh then uh, things arise within that belief system let's say um kind of a similar track to what robert anton wilson was on when he was talking about reality tunnels and switching between them. And can you explain a little bit more about chaos magic to people who might be new to it and where it comes from, how you discovered it? Uh, yeah, I think it's originally English. I wouldn't be surprised if it is. It's a kind of punk punk approach to 
uh, to magic, or at least my friend Julian Vane talks about it as a, a magpie's approach, uh, picking up shiny things and then, you know, uh, kind of stealing stealing things from different traditions and putting them together into uh, into different configurations. So it's a it's a, it's a system of, of occultism, let's say, where rather than you, you would believe in perhaps a particular Hindu deity for the purposes of a ritual well then having done your ritual you would then put your let's say put your beliefs back on onto chaos or onto you 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 would you then free yourself from those beliefs so the idea is certain beliefs will get you certain results so if you're casting a spell for example you might cast it from within a kind of goetia solomonic magic system or uh you might go full-on kind of evangelical christian or you uh you can kind of do whatever you like um, I guess what holds it together is beauty and coherence. Yeah. So think punk. Think 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 uh, kind of punk goth magicians uh, with a kind of screw you attitude to any kind of belief. So for example, they don't have they don't have subordinates. They have insubordinates in the in in, in the in the IOT, which is one of the magical orders. There. The idea being that the person beneath you. The, so traditionally, you'd have a you'd have uh, someone training underneath you, the idea of the insubordinate is that they will um, raise questions and kind of criticize uh, uh, your your own belief system. Oh, wow. So a lot of pushback. So it's it, it's one that lends itself to psychoactives. Yeah, I think so. Um, I also think that um, psychoactives without... Psychoactives can be quite... Let's say psychedelics can be quite problematic Uh in some ways, uh, you get quite a lot of people, for example, going off to the Amazon, drinking ayahuasca six times, and then coming home with some very clear beliefs about beliefs about what they are, and uh, that they're now doing shamanism or something like that. A friend of mine was recently doing a um, a survey of um, I, uh, kind of ayahuasca users in England. He was asking people about brujeria, asking them about witchcraft, and pretty much everyone in England didn't have any, just thought that was kind of a, a nonsense thing to believe. Uh, the idea of witchcraft If you go into a, any, any traditional ayahuasca culture, um, they know all about witchcraft. Um, so I think you need to be quite careful with, with, with that kind of chaos approach to, you need to be quite careful if you're taking something you like and leaving behind something you don't like. Um, that can be quite unskillful as well if it's not done with a good amount of honesty and understanding of what why you might not like something. You understand what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, when 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 people take psychedelics, they can often have a you know, the edges get permeable and the ego kind of dissolves, and then when it comes back, it can kind of come back with a vengeance, and it can it it seems to expand often with people. So this is why I say the person coming back from the jungle reckon he is a shaman after after six sessions um yeah so it's i i think it's quite important that um well not just a cultist just that anyone holds holds their beliefs lightly or wears their beliefs lightly one thing you've written about and spoken about a good bit is warnings against this ayahuasca light uh phenomenon kind of unfolding across the west and i was wondering what advice you would have for people who want to try to uh, maximize the benefit and minimize the harm while taking ayahuasca. Yeah, I think um, I think the fact that ayahuasca has hit the West in a big way, I think that's a good thing. I'm not overly curmudgeonly uh, about that. Um, 
I just want to, yeah. Um, what advice would I give? Firstly, I think it's really important that you meet the person. If at all possible, you meet the person before you're doing the session with them because you're going to be putting your um, soul in their hands for the evening. And um, imagine, you know, imagine you had a newborn baby or something like that. Would you be prepared to let this person look after your newborn baby for the evening? I think that's kind of the first thing, you know, do you intrinsically trust this person? Also, are you sufficiently, um, uh, do you have enough discernment to, to actually trust, you know, you know, you might be a person who trusts anyone, you know? Um, so it's not necessarily the fact that you trust them that will make them, uh, will make it a kosher, a kosher thing to do. Um, but that'd be, that'd be like a very, uh, of any minute, very minimum thing. Do you trust this person? Is the person that you're drinking with, are they prepared to take questions? Are they going to get offended by a question? You know what I mean? Um, it's quite important to, again, to, I would test someone for the degree of their self, uh, oh, I don't know, self-righteousness, that kind of thing. If you get a whiff of arrogance off the guy who's going to be providing you with ayahuasca, I would say think think twice about it. Or the woman. Yeah, that's good advice. Um, and I was curious about how your journey began with ayahuasca and how that went. Um, yeah, so I was living in Japan. Um, this is going back 18 years ago now. So just the beginning of the beginning of the millennium. And um, I was with a woman there who she didn't speak a great deal of English. And I didn't speak a great deal of Japanese at that particular point. And she asked me if I wanted to come to a... A, a crazy drugs party and I said well yes of course I do and she didn't really explain it much more than that and um I was sold anyway so off I went and was quite shocked really to discover a, a room full of Japanese people the men on one side the women on the other side um the men wearing kind of slacks and white shirts and the women wearing skirts and the cross and the scent of incense and all kinds of catholic business uh going on and i made a beeline to the only other white man in the room and asked him i said is this some kind of a church and he said yeah it's a funky church and uh yeah so then i was kind of there and what happens what happens in daimi is it begins with a prayer and so i kind of listened to these strange japanese people uh praying christian prayers in portuguese uh Listening with some contempt, I will add, I was quite a um, uh, a belligerent. Um, I don't know if I was an atheist, but um, um, I think I was just quite belligerent at the time in the way <laughs> the way I thought. And um, uh, and I was a Buddhist as well. Uh, I was well, at least I was practicing Buddhism. So yeah, so I listened to that, and then I uh, drank a dose, and um, then all the you know eventually all the walls kind of melted, and I uh, I found myself um, you know ayahuasca is very strong. The the system of daimi is a very strong ritual. Right? The ritual form is very much central. Um, but people get a little bit confused about daimi because you know it's called a it's called a religion. It's called a um, it's called one of the ayahuasca religions. The the progenitor, the founder of of, of daimi, whose name is Mestre Irenaeus, when he was asked, he, he said that people should, that that daimisters should call themselves Catholics. Right. So he didn't see it as a, a religion itself. He saw it as a practice that took place within the confines of, of Catholicism. And we're talking about folk Catholicism here. So this is Catholicism a long way away from the Vatican and kind of deep in the Amazon rainforest. 
so it's not it's it's not quite what you might imagine uh uh less of more 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 imperial catholicism uh might be <clears throat> yeah so so the ritual is really uh is is done ideally and in, in in brazil done in a very tight way so you know exactly where you're meant to be there's a place that you stand you stand the person on your on your on your right is taller than you and the person on your left is shorter than you and you stand in your lines and um do a certain kind of three step all day or all night and they do it in brazil and um uh, your next move is is, is very much uh, decided i.e you sing the next line and then after you get to the end of the song you sing the next song and when you get to the end of all the songs you do a prayer um so in one way it's very constricting uh, in another way, it's very liberating because you don't have to think about what you're doing next. You can you can allow your journey to go and you can follow it wherever it uh, wherever it takes you. But I guess what I wanted to say is, in terms of beliefs, like Mestrianeo, he removed the uh, the creed from the Catholic litany. So in most Catholic ceremonies, you will have to say something along the lines of, "I believe in God the Father. I believe in the communion of saints. I believe in the resurrection of." resurrection in the flesh and and Messier in, in when he kind of when he created his own his own lineage he took that out which is quite significant the idea you don't actually have to believe in anything and if you ask someone if you ask the guy running a session or the woman running a session the the the, the, the answer to a spiritual question the the answer you will probably get is uh, you'll probably get pointed to the daimi, basically. You'll probably get coined, pointed to the brew. So it's a, it's not a received tradition in the way that we don't have priests who explain what stuff means. We have a brew, which is our means of understanding, you know, and different things. Within that ritual, there are certain things there, but the actual meaning of them, you know, what does the Virgin Mary, what does that mean? That's something outside of the doctrine, uh, as in it's not something that's explained anywhere in the teachings. Uh, you get kind of inklings of it, um, but we don't have any dogmas, which is really good for me. Yeah, because you're you're particularly against the Apostles' Creed because of its history, and I was wondering if you could explain more. Yeah, there was a guy called uh, Irenaeus of Leon, another Irenaeus, who decided what the what the form of the Bible would be or the New Testament, and he was the guy who basically chose Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John from all the Gospels, and there were loads of Gospels at the time, you know, at least 30, maybe maybe twice as many, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, for example, Gospel of Thomas. Um, the Gospel of Thomas uh, has a line where when Christ walks, he doesn't leave any footprints, right? Uh, now, this, so for example, the this this was quite a contentious thing when the Gnostic, the early Gnostic, well, Scott Prino, when the early church or churches were setting up all around the Mediterranean, they all kind of, they they believed quite a wide variety of things. And later you got uh, the orthodox idea of, of what you're meant to believe, i.e. I believe in God the Father, I believe in the communion of saints, I believe in the resurrection of the flesh, uh, in the flesh. Uh, and if you don't believe in those things, you go to hell for eternity. Um, now, just to take one of those examples, for example, the resurrection in flesh, in, in the flesh, the, the opposite the, or the other alternative to that is the resurrection in spirit. Right. So if you look in the, the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, for example, uh, Jesus, after he's died, he visits her uh, in a vision and he says something along, along the lines of don't accept any laws from the lawmakers. Uh, now, if you imagine trying to hold the Roman Empire together as there were various different groups who didn't take their authority from the bishop, but they actually called a bishop a dry canal 
and they took their authority from invisible people who were appearing in visions and dreams uh and also you know they were kind of making prophecy and all these kind of things it's really not conducive to an empire right um empires need to be administered with a firm hand and so the apostles creed was a very good way of uh let's say making heretical certain things like that taking authority away from people and their own uh experiences of spirituality like for example the gnostics said <clears throat> that uh what makes a church is the holy spirit whereas the what became orthodox he said no 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 what makes a church is a bishop and that's quite a different idea right and they said the holy spirit is invisible but it's instantly recognizable you know uh so the uh you look at paul's letters he kind of touches on these kind of things you know he says you know some of you may have an some of you may have uh, a teaching um some of you may have a bunch of ideas but listen what i'm saying is what jesus christ said and if you're not if you don't if you're not down with that then you're wrong and so for your own history what got you studying the the hints of drugs in the bible what was your first looks where it's like oh there might be something here i need to look at i think yeah i got totally obsessed by the book to begin with um from another direction i, I gave a talk at an anarchist conference about mistranslation in the bible that was one of the first talks i gave on the bible mistranslation in the service of empire and um <clears throat> so i looked into um I, I mean i was looking at this line from from matthew at the end of the world there'll be uh wailing and all kinds of bad things happen i looked at the word in greek and the word for world is not world it's aeon uh which means the same as it does in english aeon uh, an epoch so at the end of the epoch there would be uh all kinds of horrible things happening which is exactly what the puritans in england wanted at the time when that bible was put together so king james comes along and says now let's make it uh let's make this bible uh, something which is not contentious something which isn't going to cause any problems in this rather revolutionary moment we're having in English history. So I got into the Bible through mistranslation and I've, and I've continued to find that fascinating. Uh, just to give you one example, a lot of people talk about Adam's rib. Um, I think there was a recently American um, uh, politician who came out with this, um, with this thing about Adam's rib and uh, I can't remember what kind of misogynistic purpose he used it for. Now that word for rib is elsewhere in the Bible is translated as side, not rib. In fact, the only time it's ever translated as rib is in that particular in that particular line. So the so the original line would be uh, Yahweh Elohim uh, divided the man in half and then sealed up the wound. He didn't take out his rib. You see what I mean? So uh, yeah. So to answer your question about the drugs, um, how did I get into that? Um, I think I just I think I just ate some frankincense. I've got a feeling that was that was my. Uh, it was just an inkling to eat some frankincense. Um, yeah. <laughs> That's great. And to, and that'd be a great one to start on because it's so widely known. It's one of the most widely known drugs in the Bible, but a lot of people don't know it's it's psychoactive. So can you tell us about frankincense and what it's like when you share it with people? Um, yeah. Uh, frankincense, um, just on your teeth, it's kind of gummy. It's, it makes a gum if you get some like high-grade frankincense and you'll chew it up. Um, that stuff w has been carried from um, Oman to Palestine for many, many thousands of years. Before it was burned to Yahweh, it was burned to Baal, the Canaanite god. And before it was burned to him, it was burned to Ra, the Egyptian god. And there's, so, so there's been this 
a trade and, and that, that journey takes six months um, and it's 1500 miles and it's through robber infested deserts. It's a real effort to get frankincense all the way from, uh, from where it, where it, where it grows to where it's burned. And um, what's it got in it? Um, it's got, it's got a bunch of stuff in it. And like, for example, it's got um, dehydroabiotic acid, which is a GABA receptor agonist. So GABA receptors are the most common receptors in your brain. Your brain, uh, 40% of your neurons have GABA, GABA receptors on them, and they're inhibitory. That means that if you take a GABA receptor agonist, like frankincense or like Valium, then it makes that particular nerve less likely to fire. So it dampens down the whole system. Um, and it, it's got other stuff in it as well. It's got um, incensile acetate, which... Uh, affects the the TRPV3 ion channel, which is quite an interesting one because in the brain, well, this, this ion channel is found in the skin um, where it's involved in temperature, uh, temperature sensation. It's also found widely distributed in the brain, but we don't know what it does in the brain. So it's a mystery, that one. Yeah, so frankincense also contains pinene, uh, alpha and beta pinene, camphene, sabinine, myrcene, which is related to uh, MDMA, limonene and uh, linalool as well. Limonene is a really interesting one. Um, it's what makes lemons smell like lemons. And there was an experiment done uh, in a hospital with depressed people. And basically what they did was uh, was to have a lemon fragrance, a lemon vaporizer in the room the whole time. Uh, so after I think it was two weeks, this experiment, uh, people were basically inhaling vapors of lemons. And of the 12 depressed people, nine of them had come off their medication and their scores had got back to normal on their uh, on their, their depression scores. Now, the reason I think that is interesting and these like like so these kind of minor, uh, well, what might be considered not necessarily psychedelic in itself. Um, but so, for example, the tranquilizer aspect of frankincense. Um, there's a really interesting experiment where people were tested for creative uh, thinking or creative problem solving. And they were divided into two cohorts, two groups. And both of them had to do this test. But before they did the test, they had to solve a maze. And they had to solve the same maze, but there was a slight difference in that um, one of the mazes was illustrated with a, um, a mouse trying to get a piece of cheese going through the maze. And the other one was illustrated by a mouse trying to get away from a nasty looking bird of prey. And then so people sat the mazes and they went and did some problem solving. Now, the group which was seeking the cheese did twice as well as the group that were um, looking at the maze, which was, you know, had the un unhappy looking uh, mouse in it. So I think that's quite significant because frankincense and myrrh and these chemicals that are in the Bible and that we're going to talk about were used in divination. Basically, the main function of them, certainly in the tabernacle, was divination. So the high priest would go would be anointed with a bunch of oils and then he would sit in a, a kind of a hot box smoke chamber uh, in clouds of in clouds of smoke. And uh, he would talk to the angels, he'd see visions of the angels, and then he would take whatever answers that he learned back out to the tribe and then uh, to guide the tribe, which is very much how shamanism works in, uh, in the Amazon. The shaman goes off on his own or her own and comes back with information on what the you know maybe it's diagnosing a disease or maybe it's military divination you know when should we attack or when the enemy going to attack us uh 
finding your way to game or to uh, to resources, that kind of thing. Um, so if you think of divination as problem solving, kind of very elaborate ritual of problem solving, then it makes sense that's something that will reduce your anxiety uh, and increase your powers of problem solving. Uh, it kind of makes sense that you have a bunch of tranquilizers in there. However, having said all that, uh, it's quite important that we don't get too lost in words like tranquilizers and anxiolytics and so on and so forth, because those chemicals do all kinds of things, especially in combination. They do some wonderful things in combination. And that's one of the interesting things about the ancient world is how many plants would get thrown into one brew. And you have all these debates about um, which plants are being used. You know, some people are saying it's cannabis, some other DMT containing materials. What do you think are the most common drugs that were being used in like the Old Testament period of the Bible? Um, well, I guess what we would recognize today as a drug would be cannabis. Um, I think Chris Bennett has sewn up that particular line of inquiry. It seems um, at this point, looking at the evidence from the Bible, looking at the evidence from uh, linguistics and the archaeological evidence, which is, you know, it was found cannabis both in, uh, in Palestine uh, and in every single territory around it. Um, yeah, there's absolutely, there's almost no doubt that that um, bosom in the Bible is is cannabis. The way it was used is interesting because the the pipe hadn't been introduced to that part of the world yet, and the way that, for example, Herodotus he visits the Scythians in about 500 BC, and he reports that they fold down the flaps of their tents, and then they throw cannabis on the fire. And then here's the quote, immediately it smokes and gives out such a vapour as no Grecian vapour bath can exceed the Sith's delighted shout for joy. Right. So that's how they threw a party. They did it at funerals as well. Um, the Scythians. Um, but yeah, so this, this idea of fumigation inside enclosed spaces, you see that in various different uh, tribes. You see it in like, you see something similar happening in China. You see it with the Oracle at Delphi as well who was prophesizing from within in the cave, again, in enclosed space, and she was burning all sorts, including myrrh, um, which contains opioid, um, uh, opioid receptor agonists. And, um, yeah, so you get this in the tabernacle as well. The tabernacle is a piece of kit described over five chapters in the Bible, and what you end up with is a very, very well-sealed smoke chamber at the back of it, uh, and a thick veil to keep the smoke in as well. And the only thing that happens in there is uh, handfuls of finely ground psychoactive resins are burnt in a sensor and uh, the high priest talks to angels. In terms of other drugs, I mean, um, myrrh, which is still used uh, as a mood enhancer today, is social lubricant. There's tribes in Africa which still uh, have take myrrh at parties. The Romans used to have myrrh-infused wine. Um, something quite interesting about the way the Romans did it is that um, it, or you, you can imagine how sumptuous and how lavish a Roman uh, feast would be, but you only got one glass of um, of myrrh wine because myrrh is soporific, it's hypnotic. If you if you drink too much of it, you go to sleep. So they knew about not overdoing the dose there. So yeah, myrrh. Um, obviously, it's there. It's one of the one of the gifts that's given to the baby Jesus. Uh, it's offered to Christ on the cross when he's um, being executed. Um, he's offered myrrh in wine, probably because it's a painkiller. And in fact, it contains one, one of the opioid um, 
receptor agonist it contains has a tenth the painkilling power of uh, morphine. What else? Uh, yeah, frankincense. Um, you've got a load actually. There's one called Costus, which I'm getting into recently. Sassarea Costus. Um, it's used in uh, Jostics. It's kind of smoked in Tibet. Um, it's used in Ayurvedic medicine as well. Or you can get drops of it. And um, like the Islamic um, culture, they say that if you put this stuff up your nose, it will make you sneeze out your jinn, and it'll make you sneeze out your bad spirits. So I've been uh, I've experimented I've experimented with that. It doesn't make me sneeze yet. Um, but it has made me feel really good because it's got all kinds of nice chemicals in it. Costas, get that one off the internet. Do you have any other favorites you would recommend that are uh, the so-called in the legal entheogen uh, realm? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I like myrrh. Um, myrrh is delicious. Um, the combination of myrrh and cannabis is something quite extraordinary. Just a few crystals. Uh, you know, people will look at you funny at parties. Um, but if you chug away on that for a little bit, uh, yeah, it's really, really quite pleasant. To to switch some back to something a little bit more um, personal, because um, there's a medicinal side to all of these as well, which I think is really fascinating how it can be spiritual and medicinal and recreational intoxicant. Um, and so I wanted to hear more about you going to South America and picking up that terrible parasite and how you used um, – Aya and folk medicine to to fight against it. Yeah, um, well, thank you for that question. Uh, I got I hadn't been in Brazil very long. I'd only been there a few months, and I went uh, to cut some jagubi to cut some ayahuasca vine, uh, and I got bitten by a sandfly, and I got bitten just underneath the nipple uh, on my left hand side, and that the bite kind of swelled into a pimple, and the pimple kept growing, and uh, became a problematic pussy uh ulcer and people looked very gravely at it and they said this is ferida brava which means an angry ulcer that's how you translate it um or leishmaniosa which is in portuguese which is a beautiful word i think leishmaniosa in english leishmaniasis and um they said the people around me said i needed to go and take injections of antimonium tartrate and um I'd studied this kind of thing. My degree was in the history and philosophy of, of science, technology and medicine. And I kind of specialized in the history and uh, kind of real politics around medicine. And this is kind of going back. You know, I stopped taking uh, pharmaceuticals when I was a teenager um, and uh, was still quite militant about that. Um, so I didn't believe the hype. And I knew that these people had been treating this same disease, you know, just decades before with local medicines. In fact, it's always struck me about, um, I remember when I was very young, my mum, uh, I, got, I, got st- I got stung by a stinging nettle and she pointed to a dock leaf, which was just next to the stinging nettle. I don't know if you've got that in uh, from where, where you're from. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I always found that amazing that there's something that stings you and there's the medicine right next to it. And you see that, if you look, you see that in many places in the natural world. Um, and not just in space, actually in time as well. Certain things will flower at the time when the flower is useful for for treating a certain disease, for example. So in terms of time and in space, um, your medicine is often right next to the disease. So I didn't believe that you needed to have, I didn't believe that I needed to have injections of of heavy metals into my body. And um, I've been drinking ayahuasca for about, or daimish I should say, uh, for about six years at that point. Um, So I already had plenty of... um, examples 
plenty of proofs, let's say, of of spectacular things happening, things that I'd wished for popping into my hands or, you know, visions that had uh, had been turned out to be really magical. So um, it, it was quite interesting because I'd gone to Brazil with a very two very specific um, jobs, let's say. One of them was to learn more about how powerful Daimi was. And the other one was to finish writing my my book, my first book. Uh, which was about, among other things, medicine and the politics around it, and also about um, about autonomy of your own body and uh, a bunch of stuff like that. So what happened? So I had this, I had this, uh, this growing ulcer, and people got started to get really scared. They said, "You've got to have injections because this this particular disease, um, it's it can't be cured with natural medicines." And the second stage of it, it attacks the cartilage in your nose and your ears and your throat and your stomach and everywhere you've got cartilage basically and then you know i remember this guy saying to me listen i'll put you in my car we can drive around town and i'll, I'll point out the people who haven't got noses because they had, they had this disease and they didn't have any antimonial tartrate to treat it now i didn't believe this i thought it was un- untrue from my academic background and um also um like i say i already had plenty of proof that daimi was magical and here i was being given an opportunity to do the two things which i'd actually gone to brazil to do First one was to learn about power of daimi, and I had a very, very good opportunity because uh, I had a serious disease. And the second one, um, which was to finish my book. Now, as I said, the book was about medicine, uh, among other things, and it it was so pertinent, and uh, it was the kind of perfect answer to the question. You know, it, it would have, it made my book into an autobiography rather than uh, just the stories of stuff that I'd learned. And I thought that was an opportunity that was too good to turn up uh, or turn down. Um, so yeah, what did I do? I, I drank loads and loads of diamine. I did it in ritual. Um, I I went to see a curandero who. Um, so this yeah, in in the lineage that I'm from, diamine again. I mentioned that guy Mestre He his own curandero was called Padrino Wilson, and Wilson's son lived quite near where I lived in uh, in the jungle. Um, so I went to go and see him and, uh, he said, no, 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 I can't treat this. Uh, and, um, this is a very serious disease. You know, it can go away and it can come back again and it can, you know, destroy the cartilage in your nose. And, and I was quite cross because that's what everyone had told me. And I kind of, I expressed this to him and I kind of challenged the guy really along the lines of, well, I hear your father was a great curandero. Um, what about you? So he agreed to, to treat me and, uh, that involved drinking, Daimi every day uh, at four o'clock in the morning with a few prayers and then either going back to sleep or meditating or going for a walk or doing whatever I wanted at that point. Um, I was celibate for the whole period, which was about eight months. Um, and uh, there was quite a few kind of dietary instructions as well, because you want to keep the um, as it was explained to me. And as I understand it, um, you want to keep the infection on the skin and not let it um, get through your blood, let's say. Um, I'm not sure how nuanced that explanation is, but so I had this uh, ulcer, kind of pus flowing ulcer that was growing on my chest, and what it would do is it would kind of it would form a scab, and then underneath the scab, this pus would would mm. grow until it was um, you know until it was about to burst, and then I would put a mud pack on it, and I put like certain herbs into the mud pack, including ayahuasca. Actually, I put the mud in, into the mud pack, and then I'd sleep on it, and then in the morning that would peel off, and then I'd have a nice open like foul smelling um wound on my chest and i kind of went through that cycle over and over again watching it get bigger and smaller and bigger and smaller 
according to all kinds of things that were going on in my life and it was um it was terrifying actually it was horrible i'd wake up in the morning and the first thing i had to do was clean this thing and, you know and i had to clean it with um different like the bark of uh, a cashew tree and the bark of a mango tree and and i was doing it in a, in a ritualized way so when i was cutting the barks for example i would be making up poems to the tree which is something i do even now you know if you ever pick some medicine wild well, medicine then make some at least you know offer it something offer it at the very least thank you and if you can some kind of some kind of piece of art uh i think that's a, a good way to work with the spirits um wherever you might wherever you might find them so yeah i did that so i was drinking that every day for about four or five months of it um doing a load of um a load of ceremonies i lost 10 kilos um i lost a, a, i'd actually i'd already so the Japanese woman I mentioned before who took me along to Daimi, we split up. We married and then we split up in Japan and then I left Japan and I kind of made my way towards Brazil. <clears throat> and then she decided she wanted to get back with me and I thought this was my dream come true. And then she came over just as I got ill. And uh, so anyway, I lost 10 kilos. I lost an ex-wife as well. I lost all kinds of things that I didn't need in my life and uh, lost a pair of rose-tinted spectacles about what the world looks like. Um, I think I see it a little bit maybe a little bit more cynically, a little bit more magically and a little bit clearer uh, now. Very formative experience. Wow. Um, yeah. And uh, gutsy to, to trust to the plants like that. Um, and one line I really liked uh, from your book was how all things do seem to work uh, pretty magically. And the nurse that you met um, that helped you through this one year, one month and one day after meeting uh, this nurse, something special happened. Oh yeah, baby. Oh yeah, two babies. Yeah, two babies. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. That whole thing was totally magical. Like, uh, so I met her um, first day of January, um, and I was uh, I, the, the way. Even the way I met her was interesting. I was um, I had some tarot cards, and I was just uh, playing with my tarot cards, and this woman came over. And I'd already spotted actually. This woman was. Uh, I'd spotted that she was kind of looking at me and I was like, like I say, I was celibate at the time. I was also extremely paranoid because uh, where I lived was quite a bad place. It was uh, um, this kind of ayahuasca gangster central, let's say. Um, it's a little bit better now, but where I, when I was there, it was, it was really, really bad. Terrible, in fact. And um, the people around me had, uh, my, yeah, anyway, for, for a number of reasons, I really was in quite a bad, quite a bad situation and quite paranoid. And um, I thought that this woman was uh, a crackhead and I thought that she was uh, trying to rob me. Um, so I was very wary of her, as I was wary of everyone, everyone at that time. But she came over and uh, drew a tarot card and it was the lover's card. And I very quickly disabused her of any romantic uh, notions. I said, well, this one's, you know, it's often called the brothers. It's often called the twins. Uh, and I talked about the mysticism around, around it, which as a way of kind of, because uh, I knew she fancied me, but I was just not interested at all. And then what happened was she kind of followed me around for a, uh, a little while. She proved to be a, uh, w once I trusted her, I discovered what a wonderful person she was. And um, yeah, she looked after me. She nursed me for about four months. Um, I used to wake up in the morning to her singing Kura songs, like songs of, of, of cure. And she was very, and still is very dedicated to um, uh, that tradition and that medicine and that particular way of working. But then we went off to, um, I basically, I'd overstayed my visa by this point, by quite a lot. And I got kicked, I basically had to leave the country in a hurry and went through to Bolivia. And we went together. Um, 
And uh, in Bolivia, I bought her a tarot deck, and one of the cards was printed wrong. All, the, all of them were printed right, except for one of the cards. It was double printed, and it turned out to be the lover's card. So I thought it was quite interesting. And then we ended up having uh, twins. And as, you, as I just said, that card is also called the twins. That's one of its kind of uh, titles as well. That And both my, both my twins were born with birthmarks in the position where I had my wound beneath my uh, left nipple. And I'll tell you something else which I thought was quite interesting there was I, I, when when they'd grown a little bit, I went back to Brazil and showed them, you know, kind of showed them off to the curandero who'd fixed me when I was sick. And he, he said, oh, it left a tag, did it? You know, and I was I was expecting him to be, you know, clapping his hands and sending off fireworks at this profound piece of magic that had, that had happened. And uh, he, he was, uh, you know, he barely, you know, he, he barely raised an eyebrow, you know, because the, the, the way that... Um, that culture and actually many cultures that are that aren't um quite so let's say materialistic and um uh let's say free of poetry as this particular rotting uh, culture that you and i inhabit uh are you know if that was something that's completely normal the idea of a tag being left from one generation to the next is um yeah, it didn't even raise an eyebrow from him. All these stories just turned into some great books that I wanted to to, to touch on. So you, um, of your trilogy, the first part is Science Revealed. And then in front of me, I have Neuro Apocalypse, which has a lot about drugs in the Bible. Um, and yeah. and then to come is Apocalypses, Past, Present, and Personal. Yeah, so I don't know when that's going to come. Uh, life has got really busy recently. Uh, the first one, Science Revealed... Yeah, twins. Yeah, exactly. I've actually got another baby now. I've got a, a, a one-year-old. Ah, uh, <laughs> Thanks. Um, so he's no, not him. Um, uh, yeah. So the first book, Science Revealed, um, it's out of print at the moment. It's going to be re-released um, hopefully in the next few months. Uh, we sold out. That one is about revelation in science. I'm looking at scientists who've discovered things in dreams or in flashes of insight. Um, People like Tesla, for example, who had a vision of the uh, the alternating current motor as he was walking in Budapest Park. Um, man who never made a never made a blueprint, never made a calculation, but took about five hundred patents from things that he'd seen floating in the air in front of him. Um, Calvin's another one, an interesting one, who was sitting in his car waiting for his wife and. Uh, in about twenty seconds, he had a flash of inspiration about the Calvin cycle, which is the series of substrates that um a plant uses in order to absorb absorb um in order to do photosynthesis basically in order to f turn to, to use the energy of the sun uh, of light um yeah so i was looking at so part of the part of that first book is about uh stuff that's been discovered in dreams uh and flash of inspiration and also how the academy then deals with that so i'm looking at the um the real politic uh in journals and uh, how funding is allocated and what's behind that uh yeah i've also that's something i'm coming quite close to my heart is neocolonialism in the academy and generally uh, all kinds of awfulness in the academy so if you look online uh for a talk called neocolonialism uh in the study of ayahuasca in the academic study of ayahuasca you'll find me talking about um yeah about some of the things which are impediments to us learning stuff from indigenous people because it seems that we're not very interested in studying what the indigenous people have to say about their own medicines it often seems that um you know we kind of give a nod to the indigenous people 
the same way you might kind of clap at a child's finger painting and say, oh, isn't that quaint? Isn't that a nice thing? But actually to believe they have some real wisdom which says more about ayahuasca than, you know, receptors, for example, is, uh, yeah, the academy is not, not really there yet, in my opinion. So that's my first book, Science Revealed. Um, then they, they were released as a trilogy or the first two parts of a trilogy. They don't actually need to be read in order. And in fact, when the the uh, the one you mentioned, Neuro Apocalypse, which was originally book two, uh, it, it's uh, when it gets re-released. Um, in fact, no, that one's already been re-released. Uh, it's, um, you know, it's a standalone book. So the second one is about revelation inside your own head. So I'm looking at uh, how... For example, how different languages limit what we see. So I do this comparison between the English language and the Japanese language and psychology of perception in those two countries. Um, you know, what's been measured about. Um, I'll give you an example. If you if you if you show a, um, a fish tank, like a, an animation of a fish tank to a Japanese person and an American person, the American person is, is likely to say uh, there was a big fish and then tell you about what the big fish was doing. And the Japanese person is much more likely to say it was an aquarium and then start to describe the relation, the background details and relative details, i.e. one fish was bigger than another. Um, and then if you then take one of the fish from the animation, once, you know, once the person's uh, looked at it, you give them a five-minute break, and then you show them a fish, but you put it on a different background, right, different background to what it was originally shown on. Um, it doesn't make any difference to the American. The American will say, oh, yeah, that fish was in there, or it wasn't in there. But the Japanese takes longer to answer that question and makes more mistakes. So it seems that something happens in the Japanese person's head, uh, which means that the individual gets bound to the background. And you see that kind of filter out into all aspects of the, of the, of the culture. For example, when you're writing a haiku, it's got to have a reference to the season, for example. So it's got to be contextualized. If it's not contextualized, it's not a haiku. It's just a bunch of syllables. Um, you also see it in Japanese art. You know, there's no tradition of still life in Japan because stuff doesn't make sense in isolation. It's got to be contextualized again so you'll often see in those charcoal pictures for example uh, a small temple or something like that with all this kind of swirling waterfalls and clouds around it because the individual the the, the the connection between the individual and the context is is is, is they do it differently in japan and, and i think it's partly to do with the linguistics partly to do with the geography as well of the country uh, because you can't really be an individual in a city or in a country where you keep having tsunamis and um, earthquakes and uh, uh, they have to get together and rebuild their lives uh, you know, every couple of generations. Um, so, yeah, that's part of it is looking at, the, uh, looking at how linguistics uh, influence what we think, also how drugs influence what we think, uh, fear as well, all the different things that's going on inside your head and... Uh, how it feeds into our our perception and also our, our our capacity. So another area I'm looking at is is autism, people who uh, have heightened skills with autism, which is actually quite a lot. Like one in ten autists has some kind of area of excellence, uh, and that's only the ones that discover. And it can be anything from like balancing to there was a guy called J Mac. It's a really interesting uh, video of this guy who was he was an autistic kid who was um, obsessed with basketball, and he was the basketball teams. Uh, mascot he used to go and take people's towels and stuff and glasses of water and on the last day of high school on the last match they let him they let this guy play in the last couple of minutes and he ended up shooting like three pointers from all over the uh from all over the uh, the court and he describes how you know how the the the, the 
the basketball basket was like a, a huge bucket. Because um, autists, the way that autistic people, their visual cortex uh, cortices are different. They're, they've got much more neurons, much more connections in the visual cortex. In the visual cortex. So when you see, um, you know, in Rain Man, for example, where um, all those um, toothpicks get spilt and uh, Dustin Hoffman goes, says what number it is. It, it seems that the visual cortex in autistic people um, is a lot more a lot more acute, so they can uh, see things a lot clearer in some ways. So yeah, goes into drugs for a bit, um, goes into anarchy, goes into the construction of the Bible. The new book, I don't know. I mean, what I'm looking at there is again, it's about the apocalypse. It's my my fundamental obsession since I was a teenager was the apocalypse, and by which I mean all of it. Um, including the lifting of the veil, which is what apocalypse means, lifting of the veil, veil, when something which is hidden is not hidden anymore and you can see it. So the word discovery, discover, is another, it's a cognate of the word apocalypse. So the new book, if it ever happens, is looking at what happens when an individual's apocalypse, an individual's realisation opens up a new space uh, across the community. So, for example, when Galileo decided to turn a nautical instrument of the telescope up towards the sky and revealed the moon of Jupiter, he, uh, let's say, he revealed something that had been hidden before. So that's another, in another sense, it's an apocalypse. Uh, again, the discovery of the new world would be another one where you get suddenly this new patch of land gets discovered and all these interesting things start coming back for it, including coffee, for example. You get coffee coming back from the New World, and uh, that was the first one of the first stimulants that arrived in uh, in Europe. And then you get all this kind of revolutionary plotting in coffee houses in France and things like that. Um, yeah, I hope it gets written one day. Yeah, me too. It sounds very exciting. Uh, and by the way, for everybody listening, we'll have links to uh, the Reverend's work, um, and especially to the videos that you have on Vimeo. You have all kinds of great uh, lectures on there and all of the aspects of the things you study. So those are especially yeah, intriguing to, to check out. Thank you. Um, and so the, the one last question I wanted to ask um, before, you do, before I let you go, because then it kind of ties together. Can you talk about the phrase in the Bible or in the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, and the linguistics behind that? I thought it was the most interesting things in the book. Thank you. Um, so give us this day, give us this day, our daily bread is a whole lot of day, isn't it? When you come to think of it. Um, now, this is probably the most well-known piece of scripture of the entire New Testament. You know, that, that, that line is probably being said somewhere by somebody at any given moment um, in the world. And um, yeah, it's from the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day, our daily bread. The word um, daily there is epuson and that word doesn't appear anywhere else in the bible doesn't appear anywhere else in greek literature in fact um geronimo who has uh, translated the bible he translated it as super substantiatum which means that which is beyond uh, normal being or something like that epuson epi is the epi of epitaph or epilogue you know it's the end it's the beyond bit and uh and Uson seems to have something to do with uh, with the word be. So it's that which goes beyond normal, normal stuff. So it's it's exactly the opposite of daily. Let's say it's that which is not normally found uh, in your daily life. So give us this day our daily bread. Um, so a lot of people um, see it as manna, uh, the manna that was in the, the wilderness that the Israelites ate. 
which is also quite an interesting stuff because not only people know this because we don't we don't really read the Bible uh, very much, but there were two things given to the Israelites in the wilderness, and one was quails, uh, like quail meat. They had as much quail meat as they wanted, basically. Uh, but we don't really hear about that. We hear about the manna, and um, yeah, if you read the book, you'll get all the reasoning. In fact, even if you don't read the book, you go and check out one of my talks. Um, the 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 I think that manna is ergot. The way manna is processed in the Bible is it's ground up and then it's boiled and then it's baked, which is what Albert Hoffman said is how you would get um, a powerful psychedelic out of uh, out of ergot. And he said this was uh, open to early man. But, yeah, back to the the Lord's Prayer. Um, People, people, you know, it's it's such a curious word, you know, it's uh, it's um, like I say, it is not found anywhere else in the entire Greek language. Wow. And it might be given this day our daily ergot LSD precursor. Yeah, 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 exactly. And that, you know, I will be done. Um, quite interesting you bring up that particular prayer in Daimi. Um, the, this guy, Mestriano, who I mentioned before, he altered uh, one of the lines there. So in English, it normally says, thy kingdom come. And in Portuguese, that's venha nos a vossa reina, which is how most Catholics say it in Portugal or in, in, in Brazil. In our, my lineage, in, in Daimi, uh, it was being changed to vamos nos a vossa reina, which means let's go to your kingdom, right? Uh, which puts the onus on you as the initiate or as the person drinking that drink to do the work in order to take yourself towards the divine kingdom rather than waiting around for the divine kingdom to arrive with you. And um, I think, you know, that, that's quite good advice for anyone, you know, working with psychedelics um, or even not with psychedelics, anyone working with kind of spiritual technologies is that we need to make efforts in order to attain to the heights, we need to get our concentration up and uh, you know, not spend too much time focusing on mundane things. Um, well, thank you so much for, for sharing on this today and we'll put, and, uh, we'll put all the links there so people can learn more about your work. Um, yeah, thank you for, for all your study and sharing it with us. Great, Lex. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. All right. And good luck. Good luck with those kids and good luck getting that next book written when it comes. Cool. Well, all the best to you and also to Lorenzo as well. All right. Thanks. Take care. 